1 Kings chapter 19. We didn't quite get out of chapter 19 together last time together. Remember, as we were in chapter 19 leaving off, God was sort of uh, encouraging Elijah after a bout with depression and discouragement to sort of get back to work. And as we talked about, a lot of times one of the greatest antidotes for bouts of depression and discouragement that we can all go through even as followers of the Lord sometimes is just to get back engaged and get occupied idle time is the devil's playground and certainly that's not only just at times because we can get ourselves into trouble and things that we do but sometimes just too much time to sit and think is just not good for anybody Uh, and sometimes the healthiest thing we can do is to just get occupied get engaged to begin investing in others and serving others it's amazing how when you do that you really don't have that much time to think about yourself and think about maybe things that you shouldn't be thinking about so remember God has just told Elijah that he was to go back and to engage once again to go and anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as the new king over Israel that would come into pass and also specifically which brings us to the end of chapter 19 what we'll look at in these last few verses that he was to go and now anoint Elijah the son of Shaphat It says he was to be anointed as prophet in your place. So God kind of gives insight now to Elijah the prophet that God had a successor that was chosen for him in his ministry. It won't happen immediately, but God announces to him, listen, I've already determined who your successor is going to be, that as your ministry comes to a close, who would carry on that prophetic work that God was doing through Elijah. And that would now be a young man named Elijah who would take over the ministry ultimately. And so he knows now one of the things he is to do is to go and really kind of announce this calling upon Elijah's life and to let him know that God had called him to come into that ministry and to begin preparing for it, which brings us to right where we left off there in verse 19. After hearing this commission from the Lord and these instructions, it says that verse 19, Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. And then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. So Elijah now goes, he identifies and locates Elisha the prophet. And it says that when he finds him, that he's actually out plowing in the field. So he's occupied, he's working. This tells us a few things about him. It tells us that he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him. Now, if you had one yoke of oxen in that day, that indicated that you were doing pretty well. You were pretty well off. You were established. When somebody has 12 yoke of oxen in that ancient culture, that would indicate that he was probably pretty well off, that he actually was somewhat affluent to be able to have 12 teams and 12 yoke of oxen uh, indicates that he was somewhat of a wealthy individual. His family was. We also see here that uh, certainly he was a very humble individual because not only is he out working in the fields, but it says he actually was working and he was with the 12th. Now, that indicates, if you think about plowing a field, if he's with the 12th, you're the last group back with your yoke of oxen, so you are literally eating dust. 
if you understand what I'm saying. If there are 11 other yoke of oxen in front of you and a man with each team plowing and you're now with the 12, that means 11 other people in front of you in those dry, dusty fields are kicking up the dirt and dust and you're the rear guy in the caboose in the back and you're taking all the dirt and the dust in your face. Uh, and so it shows his humility as he's outworking the fields like this. And Elijah now passes by and it says he just threw his mantle on him. Now, they would understood what that meant in that day. The mantle was an indication of, of who someone was in their identity. And when Elijah the prophet, and everyone knew who Elijah the prophet was by this day in his public ministry, comes up and throws his mantle upon you, that was a way in a sense saying, look, I am putting the, the calling of God upon your life. I'm, I'm now you know, identifying that God's anointing will now be upon you as well, that you're called to the ministry. You're called in a sense to engage in the same things that I have been as a prophet of the Lord. So they understood, it may seem strange to us, but Elijah understood what Elijah was doing when he put this mantle upon him like this. And verse 20 says, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Seems that Elijah just did this and said nothing, uh, but he ran after him and said, please let me kiss my father and mother Yet he is to say goodbye to them, to give them a, a departure, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? It's kind of the idea of sort of saying there, look, do as you wish. Uh, there's no compulsion to have to follow me. He's kind of in, in essence saying to him, look, you, you do what you want. Uh, the calling has been identified, but I'm not forcing you to do anything. I'm not forcing you to follow me. You can go back and say goodbye to your parents or you can go back and, and choose to stay with your parents. There's no obligation. This is an invitation from God. God's given you this invitation, uh, but do as you please. The idea is there in the language. So Elijah turned back from him, verse 21, took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them, boiled their flesh using the oxen's equipment and gave it to the people and they ate. So they sort of have a farewell feast. And then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So uh, interesting what takes place here. God now determines that Elijah the prophet, that there was a, a sort of a expiration date, if you would, on his ministry, that for a, a future season he'd continue to serve. Uh, it will be actually be about another you know, five, six, seven years from this point he'll continue to serve. But God already sort of establishes a succession plan here, and he says, look, what I want you to do, I've identified Elisha to next join you in the ministry and he'll be your successor. So I want you in a sense to take him and I want you to begin to equip him and to disciple him and to let him know that my calling is upon his life as a younger man and I want you to take him to yourself and begin to invest in him and disciple and kind of mentor him. And again, we we do sort of see this pattern in the word of God that uh, Elijah would sort of mentor and disciple and prepare Elisha to embrace his ministry as a young man. Uh, remember Moses, it says that Joshua joined him as his assistant and Joshua for many years served as Moses' assistant, learning and assisting Moses and then ultimately he took over for Moses. Same thing with Paul and Timothy in the New Testament. Paul had Timothy, he had Titus, men like this, younger men who were sort of protégés, he invested in them, discipled, mentored them and then ultimately sort of turned things over to them as the next generation in the New Testament church. So we do see this beautiful pattern. I think it's a very 
wise pattern that we should always be sensitive to because we see it throughout the word of God where one generation invests in the next generation to disciple, mentor, prepare them, train them uh, so that they can carry on the work of the Lord because the Lord may change workers but the work always carries on. And so this is kind of what Elijah realized he's to now do. He goes to Elisha. He identifies this. We see in verses 19 through 21. And, and Elisha chooses to embrace the calling and to become the assistant and to kind of partner now together and join Elijah in his ministry, which will be for about the next six years before ultimately Elijah is taken up in the heaven and Elisha takes over. Now, a couple of things I think are insightful in regards to Elisha receiving the calling of God upon his life and embracing it and what that involved for him. One of the things that we can take note of in this text, and I think this is important because sometimes this is a part of what it does involve for all of us or any of us to some degree if we're going to follow God's calling upon our life. The Lord has callings upon each of our lives in different ways. Uh, we may not all be called to you know, be an evangelist who does crusades or a missionary or per se a, a pastor or something of that nature, but the Lord's put different callings on all of our lives. Certainly some are called to that. And I think some of the things are applicable. First of all, notice for Elijah to embrace the call of God upon his life specifically, it did involve him having to give up a little bit of wealth and comfort that he may have otherwise enjoyed. As again, I said in verse 19, it describes that he was with 12 yoke of oxen. He, he seemed to be living kind of a comfortable, affluent lifestyle with his family that indicates that they were doing rather well. And so really for Elisha to embrace the calling of the Lord and to follow the calling of the Lord, he had to choose in some ways to kind of be willing to give up that which was more material, that might have been a little bit more comfortable in his lifestyle to be able to make some sacrifices to follow what the Lord was leading him to do. And sometimes that's a, a thing that God impresses upon us. We have to be willing to forsake certain things, maybe leave certain things behind if we want to follow the fullness of the Lord's plan or usefulness of our life. Uh, a note, another thing I think we take note of is Elisha's call to ministry is we take notice that when God calls him, what is he doing? He's occupied and he's being productive he's a humble worker uh, when the calling of God comes upon his life to announce to him that he's been chosen to enter into ministry and prior to the time he does enter into and engage his ministry here he's not sitting around playing games on his iPhone he's not just doing nothing and he's he's occupied he's out in the field working he's productive he's engaged he, he's someone who is a humble worker who's occupied and listen when you read throughout the word of god you'll often notice that god calls workers uh, because at the end of the day listen ministry is work that's what it is. Uh, it's an excellent work. It's a wonderful work. Uh, but serving the Lord and serving people, the service implies work. And so the Lord looks for workers. When the Lord called his disciples, what were many of them? Fishermen. Fishermen were hard workers. It was hard work. Uh, it was dragnet fishing that day. They went out. It was long hours. They cast their nets. They had to come back and clean their nets. I mean, and so often in the word of God, we see, you know, Moses was tending a flock for 40 years and that's when the Lord called him. And the Lord, in a sense, what he does is he just transitions us from one form of work into another form of work. 
uh, and so important. I mean, the Lord doesn't honestly get much use, quite frankly, out of lazy people. And so we need to be willing to be workers, to be faithful, to be occupied. And when we do that, when we're faithful in those things, often the Lord says, that's a faithful, hard worker. I can transition them for my work and purposes. Notice as well for him to follow God's calling. We see in verse 20 that what else did he do is that is that he basically had to be willing to detach from his family to follow God's calling for his life and really to follow God's calling, particularly in this case, to serve from a ministry capacity. And sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, but sometimes to a degree, sometimes small, sometimes to a great degree, depending upon what the call of the Lord is on your life, it may include that. We may have to be willing to make the sacrifice to detach from our family from our loved ones, from our comfort zone, from our community, from where we, and to make that detachment in order to pursue and follow God's calling on our life. That's what Elisha had to do here. And sometimes that's a part of our life that Lord says, look, I, I want you to do this. And to some degree, that may mean there's a level of detachment that we have to choose to walk forward. And sometimes that means having to make a detachment from other things. As I said as well from verse 20, from the terms of Elijah, you can tell that this was a choice. Elijah said, look, uh, go back. You, 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 don't, you don't have to follow me. What did I do to you? The idea is, look, I didn't, I'm not forcing you to do this. I just, and, and I think for us, to some degree, look, it is an invitation to follow the call of the Lord upon your life. Whatever that may be, God graciously affords us opportunity and invitation. The Bible says many are called, few are chosen. Uh, and the Lord gives us an opportunity. Hey, do you want to serve me in this way? Would you like to engage and be involved in this? I'd like to use you in this capacity. Again, whatever that means in each of our lives. But the Lord gives us the opportunity, but, but he doesn't take forced Slaves. He's not looking to obligate us or force us because, I mean, quite frankly, if we just want to be humble about the process, if you're not available, he'll find somebody else. I mean, <laughs> you know, that's ultimately the, the, the whole story there, isn't it, of, of really what Esther learned, you know, where basically the, the communication to her was, look, if you don't step forward and embrace this opportunity, God will raise up deliverance from Israel from somewhere else. In other words, God was saying through Mordecai to Esther, look, God's, all of God's eggs aren't in just one basket in you. I mean, not, not as if, if you don't embrace this opportunity to go in and plead for the Jewish people before the king, that God's going, oh man, I mean, what am I going to do? I only had one option. <laughs> I mean, wait, I mean, this is my one option. I mean, my, my best pitcher's got a sore arm. I mean, God's not limited and so really what Esther was understanding is, look, God's going to do what God's going to do. But how do you know if you're not where you are and where you were and God didn't coordinate all the things that he did for such a time as this, that everything that's happening in your life, all the circumstances of perhaps, you know, years and months have led up to this very point and day and hour and time where you are right where you are, knowing who you know, connected to the people that you've been connected to for such a time as this to embrace an opportunity to, to, to be used by God. Uh, and so often we have to realize that God affords us the privilege, but it ultimately is our choice. And here you can see, notice lastly, that really Elijah does choose to embrace the call. And you can tell he's serious about it because verse 21, what does he do? It says he takes the yoke of oxen, slaughters the animals. They were very valuable. You have to understand that. 
That was a great sacrifice. He slaughters the animals. It says he breaks apart the oxen's equipment that he used for plowing. And he uses it to start a fire and make a feast and a sacrifice as a going away party. What was Elisha doing? What Elisha was doing was saying, I am so serious about embracing what the Lord wants for me to do in my life. I am burning every bridge and possible opportunity to go back to my past ways. And let me say, that is really important if we're genuinely going to embrace and follow the Lord obediently in what he's calling us to do. And whatever that may be, certainly sometimes that is important from a ministry perspective. You know that Jesus said, whoever puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit or worthy for the kingdom of God. And and to some degree, there's something really healthy about whatever that looks like in our life, circumstantially kind of burning the bridge and, and, you know, tearing down the avenue to have an opportunity to go backwards, to retreat, to go back into old ways. Well, if it doesn't work out, I want to have an escape hatch. That, that's not good. When we step out in faith and we say, Lord, you know, I'm stepping out in faith in such a way. I am so committed to this. I'm so confident that I'm going to burn the bridge so that I don't have an option to, to go back over across it again. And this shows his heart and his commitment that he wants to genuinely embrace this and come alongside of Elijah and learn and enter into God's plan and purpose for his life. And look, whether that be stepping into the calling of God for service, whether it be maybe something you just know the Lord's leading you to do, whether it's, you know, sometimes that's a, you know, a, a, a marriage thing. One of the things that, that breaks my heart, I see on occasion, you know, in marriage relationships or, you know, maybe with premarital counseling or whatever, is you almost get the sense that, you know, Maybe somebody in the relationship is kind of keeping an escape option open and they haven't fully burnt the bridge. They're just always kind of trying to posture things to keep an escape option to retreat just in. I mean, I really think I'm called to be married to this person, but just in case I want to keep a retreat option here. <laughs> You're not ready to get married yet then. <laughs> that's not that's not the idea. If it's of the Lord, you burn the bridge and you, cr you cross it and you blow it up behind you. <laughs> Uh, that, and, and again, that is so important. That's why we step forward in faith. We trust that the Lord is in it because there's always going to be weaknesses in our flesh, whether it's following this the Lord's leading us to do or service or Christian ministry. Look, there's always going to be times where you are tempted to want to look back or turn back. So the best thing you can do for yourself is like Elisha, just, hey, I'm burning everything down so I can't return to that. Uh, and that's great to do, whether it's some past sin you're leaving behind or maybe just some past circumstance in some way. But I love this. His ministry training begins. Do you see that last verse, uh, last word in verse 21 there? Great term to not overlook before we move on. It says that he arose, followed Elijah, and became his, I have it circled in my Bible, servant. He became his servant. This was how his whole ministry experience began. It began with learning how to be a servant. We're going to see in 2 Kings chapter uh, 3 where there it says that what he actually did at times is he was pouring water on Elijah's hands. I mean, you can't get more practical and menial than that. He's dumping water on Elijah the servant's hands so that he can wash his hands on occasion. He was learning servanthood and and he was spending the again we know chronologically about six years assisting elijah just being a helper and assistant doing practical tasks whatever needed done and i think this is a really great and valuable principle from a ministry perspective and christian service because notice that with elisha who would be used mightily of the lord but notice with elisha 
that before God granted him his own ministry, he first learned how to humbly serve in another man's ministry. Before God gave him authority to manage and be responsible for himself, God taught him how to function under authority before God entrusted him with authority. And I tell you, anyone who I've seen properly prepared and well-equipped with character and those who end up being used stably and long-term for the Lord, so often that is a crucial part of a process. It is that they are willing to take the time before God gives them their own ministry to serve in someone else's ministry, in partnership, being a helper, cooperating, servant, saying, how, how can I be a servant alongside of you how can i assist and complement what god's already doing and being willing to do with exactly what a servant does which is whatever is necessary that's what a servant does whatever needs to be done and look at the end of the day that time spent as a servant was where elisha learned the most important lessons that would make him effective in his ministry and his service because at the end of the day, you can boil ministry down really to predominantly one word, and it's servanthood. It's servanthood. And Jesus demonstrated that. Jesus, the greatest among you, is servant of all. Uh, and Jesus, in John 13, demonstrated the fullness of love. How did it was practically washed people's feet? It was practical servanthood. And so learning how to be a servant, learning how to assist and, and function in that capacity, boy, that is the greatest training, no doubt, that anyone can receive. And this is what Elijah now enters into with Elijah. And we'll see this as these two continue to partner and serve together. Now, you come to chapter 20, you would think, okay, great. Now we're going to get to hear kind of how these two serve together. And the interesting thing is really the Bible shifts gears it takes us to a completely different story at this point. It says, uh, verse 1 of chapter 20, Now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together, 32 kings who were with him, with horses and chariots. And remember, horses and chariots was indication of an established military presence. Those were like their tanks and uh, things like that in that day. And he went up and he besieged Samaria. That's the capital, remember, of the northern kingdom. We're now in the time of the divided kingdom, Israel in the north and, and Judah, the southern kingdom. So he goes up, he besieges, lays siege to the capital city of Samaria and made war against it. Now, as we go through chapter 20 here, certainly there are literal events taking place historical things being described where God's dealing with King Ahab, showing his grace to him in amazing ways. But as we look at this, I encourage you to just with eyes of you know, faith and being sensitive, there are certainly great lessons, I think, to be gleaned illustratively regarding the spiritual battles and conflicts we experience in our own lives uh, with the enemy of our soul, the devil himself. And in the same way, a lot of what happens here, uh, these same kind of things happen in all of our lives. Because notice, unprovoked, all of a sudden now, the enemy, it says Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, the enemy initiates an assault. He initiates an attack. This isn't something in response to what Israel or Ahab had done. It just says that he gathers together all his forces. Last I checked in the New Testament, the devil does have forces. It's called the demonic realm. 
that we don't wrestle against blood, but principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this present age, the devil and all his demonic forces. And, and Ben-Hadad rallies his forces, 32 kings as a confederation, and he goes up and he now attacks and lays siege against Syria and uh, against Samaria and starts to make war against it. So again, much like the enemy of our soul, the devil, he launches assaults and attacks because what does he want to do? He wants to conquer us. He wants to defeat us. He wants to take things away from us and bring ruin into our lives. And the same as we see happening here. Verse two, it tells us, and then he sent messengers. Imagine this. He sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine. Your loveliest wives and children are mine. So he sends messengers as he lays siege outside the city. And what does he do? With threatening, intimidating, rather demanding voices, he starts basically trying to lay claim and take control of everything that was precious in Ahab's life. His silver and gold, that is his resources. His, his family, wives, children, and everything that would be precious, his resources, his family, he says, it's mine. I'm laying claim to it. I'm taking control of it. I'm taking it out of your control and I want to now be in control of those things. And he comes in with this strong voice to intimidate and try and strike fear. And here again, what does the enemy want to do? He wants to control his resources. He wants to control his family and use them for his purposes. And look, that's exactly what the enemy of our soul wants to do in our lives. He wants to launch attacks against our lives and what he wants to do is he wants to strip away from you that which is precious in your life. And he doesn't want you to be in control of how you use your resources for good purposes and for God's purpose. The devil says, I want to be in control of your resources. I want to be in control of all of your resources. And more than that, I want to be in control of your family. And I want to take control and lay claim to your family for myself, for my purposes. And look, this is part of the way the devil launches his attacks. He tries to take control of what's important and precious in our lives. And he tries to threaten as if somehow he's going to claim it and take it from us forcefully. It's mine. I'm going to take control of those things. And that's what he wants to do to bring about our ruin. Verse 4, And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that you have are yours. So Ahab doesn't put up much of a defense there. I mean, that's pretty quick. The demand comes, he threatens, he intimidates, and Ahab wrongly cowers in fear here and passivity, and he yields to the demand of the enemy. Now, was it a genuine threat? Sure, I'm sure it was a genuine threat, but uh, he just yields in passivity and probably thinks that if he surrenders some, then things maybe will get a little bit easier. And so he's looking for, so he thinks, maybe if I just don't resist and I give a little control over then maybe things will just calm down and, and maybe he'll leave me alone and, and it won't be as bad for me. And he thinks if he concedes, he can avoid more difficulty and problems personally. And sadly, all he's doing is thinking about himself right here. He's just thinking, what's best for me in the process? And I'll tell you something, that's exactly what the enemy wanted Ahab to do and that's exactly what our enemy wants us to do. The enemy wants to encourage us to think about nothing other than ourselves. 
not to think about what's in the best interest of our families, not to think about what's in the best interest of our responsibilities, but what the enemy wants us to do is think about what's in our own best interest and to get us to just passively yield ourselves over to his control in some way and to even wrongly kind of think like Ahab here, well, maybe if I just, maybe if I just concede a little bit, then, then things will just get easier. And it won't get harder. And he kind of deceives us to almost think, well, maybe if I just yield a little bit. I mean, I'll just, that's it. I'll just, I'll just kind of yield a little bit to this temptation. And maybe if I just yield a little bit to this temptation, then it'll just calm down. L- l- let, me, let me help you with that. No, it's going to inflame it. All you're going to do is put a log on the fire. One of the greatest deceptions of the devil is we're facing strong temptation to sin in some capacity or do something wrong and we think, oh, if I just give in, then maybe like it's like I'll have relief somehow. No, you won't have relief. What you'll do is you'll release that sinful passion to a much greater degree and things will just get worse and the flame will just burn brighter and there'll be even greater loss in the process. So Ahab here just makes this mistake. He just yields to the demand and watch what happens. Verse five, then the messengers came back and said, thus speaks Ben-Hadad. Indeed, I have sent to you saying, you shall deliver to me your silver and your gold, your wives and your children, but I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time and they shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. Now, I want you to notice what happens here. When the enemy saw from Ahab that there was what? No resistance. When the enemy saw, hey, this guy's just going to yield. There's no resistance. What does the enemy do? He begins to demand even more. He says, wait a minute. If you're not going to put up any resistance, why should I just take your wives and your resources? I'm going to send my servants in, he says, and whatever they like and whatever looks good in your house and all your servants, they're just going to take everything from you. And he just, he's never satisfied. He just says, I'm just going to take even more. If you're not going to fight back, then I'm just going to take everything from you. And again, can I just say that as a fitting illustration of exactly what the enemy of our soul, the devil wants to do in our lives. If the devil sees that we are not going to put up resistance to his attacks and his assaults and his temptations when he comes against our life and spiritual attack and warfare, and te- if he sees we're not going to stand in spiritual warfare and resist the devil and submit to God like the Bible tells us to so that he will flee from us, that's what the Bible tells us to do. If he sees we're not going to resist, what he's going to do is he's just going to demand more oh, well, if you're not going to resist, then I'm actually going to take even more control. I'm going to take over more territory in your life and I'm going to conquer more and I'm going to rob, kill, steal and kill everything I can from you and just take more and more. Look, the devil is never satisfied. He'll just take more territory and more territory and more territory. The best thing that we can do when the enemy comes in to assault and attack is to do what Ephesians 6 says, which is to stand to just withstand, to submit to God, to resist the devil, as James says, and he'll flee from us, to to not give in, to not yield, but to stand our ground spiritually, to call upon the Lord to come to give us aid and strength and help to resist his attacks. Verse 7, So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said to them, Notice, he says, please, 
He says, see how this man seeks trouble. For he sent to me for my wives, for my children, my silver and my gold, and I did not deny him. So he's trying to get some counsel now. At least he tells his elders and leaders, look, I, this guy asked, and hey, I, I, I gave in to his demands. I gave him what he wanted. And here's their counsel, verse 8. And all the elders and all the people said to Ahab, do not listen or consent. Now that's some really good counsel there. Ahab, what are you doing? If you give him what he's demanding, if you just yield in passivity and just grant him what he's saying that he's going to take from you, all he's going to do is just conquer and control you even more. And he's going to demand and require and steal and rob even more from you. So they say, don't listen to what he's saying and certainly don't consent, don't compromise. And again, I look at that and I think, boy, that, that's really good counsel and the, the type of counsel I hope we would give to one another if we come and talk to one another about spiritual temptation and I feel like the enemy's just really attacking and he's really just you know heavily putting his demands upon me with temptation and he's attacking my home life and my spiritual walk. I, I would hope that the thing that we would say to one another is, well, you know what happens to all of us? I mean, just just go with it, brother. I mean, just... God will forgive you afterward. No, I would hope that we would say, don't listen. Don't listen to the voice of the devil. He's lying to you. He's trying to make you fearful so that you forsake what God wants for you. He's trying to work his way in to basically sabotage the good things that God wants. Don't listen to his lying voice. Don't listen to his voice. And certainly don't consent to him don't give him what he's asking you to do. Don't give in to his temptations and his demands in your life. Resist him. Well, verse 9, Therefore, having heard that counsel, he said to the messengers, Tell my lord the king, All that you sent for your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. I can't go that far. And the messengers departed and brought back word to him, to Ben-Hadad. Well, then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left in Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So he says, basically, that's it. You, you pushed me over the edge. You're resisting me. So he just launches a heavy... The idea is like, you, you're, I'm going to turn that place to dust. There's not even going to be any spoils left for my men to take. All they're going to be able to do is pick up a handful of dust because we're going to come through there and just blow that place up and just totally launches the fear and the intimidation well interestingly enough verse 11 all of a sudden ahab tries to get a little backbone verse 11 so king of israel answered and said tell him let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off so the basically the idea is that we all right it's on <laughs> tell look what what are you doing boasting like you already won the battle and you're taking your armor off when we didn't even put our armor on and go to fight yet? Okay, if you want to fight, now all of a sudden Ahab, you know, maybe his masculinity comes out a little bit. It just, you, you want to fight, then fine. But what I would recommend, it's not good to boast before the fight's done. He says, don't start boasting like you're taking off your armor like you already won the battle because we didn't even put the armor on and start fighting yet. So he says, you want to fight, you got yourself a fight. Verse 11 or 12, excuse me, and it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message as he and his kings were drinking at the command post that he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. So now both men, they're ready to engage. This large-scale war is going to take place. 
Uh, obviously, Ben Haddad feels overly confident. They're having a drunken party prior to this. Get ready as they're getting drunk. Verse 13, notice what happens now. Suddenly, a prophet, again, unnamed, which goes to show you, does God use Elijah's? Absolutely. Does God use Elisha's? Absolutely. Does God use Jeremiah's and Isaiah's? Yes. But God also uses unnamed, unknown prophets. People who nobody knows about. Does God use those who are well-known and well Absolutely. But God also uses people who are just faithfully willing to come and speak the word of the Lord. The Bible doesn't even tell us who this is. And in this passage, we're going to see multiple times the word of the Lord comes and there's no identification. It's just some humble servant of the Lord who just is faithfully bringing the word from God. And again, just a good reminder that God can use all of us. So now verse 13, in the midst of these circumstances, a prophet approached Ahab, king of Israel, saying, thus says the Lord. Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today and you shall know that I am the Lord. So as this battle's about to engage, and we're going to see in the verses ahead, Israel is incredibly outnumbered. They had good and just reason to be utterly terrified at the forces that were coming against them. Remember back in verse one, it said Ben-Hadad gathered what 32 kings and this is a large outnumbering against a smaller group of people and now god speaks this word since ahab chooses to stand his ground and says look you tell ahab that i said i'm going to deliver that great multitude into your hand and you shall know that i am lord in other words i'm going to help you and i'm going to give you victory and you're going to defeat them Consider this if you would. Think about who God is sending this prophetic word to. Ahab? Do you remember what we've learned about Ahab so far? That he was the most wicked king in all of Israel's history so far? He did more evil to provoke the Lord to anger and introduced idolatry and immorality and him and his wife Jezebel were utterly wicked people. I mean, ungodly and wicked. And, and we need read nothing here even of Ahab seeking God. He doesn't pray. He doesn't call upon the Lord for help. And yet, God graciously sends a prophet of the Lord with a word from God saying, Ahab, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you victory. And I'm going to work in this situation to, to deliver you and show my power that you may know that I am the Lord. The point here is this, verse 13, is a total act of grace. A total act of grace. I mean, if there was anybody who was the most unworthy recipient of God's help, of a word from the Lord, certainly it was Ahab. But yet here is God being completely gracious to him being totally merciful he isn't even asking for god's help and god was willing to be gracious to him in his unworthy condition in his evil condition why because god is constantly trying to win him over to himself and and man the the reality of the grace of god and, and this just goes to show so often we think, oh, well, I need to, you know, God helps me because I, I, I work hard enough or I try hard enough or I make myself worthy enough. Listen, look who God's helping here. 
This is Ahab. It's all about grace. It was all about the grace of God. He deserved nothing. He didn't even ask for anything, but God lovingly, graciously steps in because God chooses to be gracious. And so God here says, look, I'm trying to win you over, Ahab, that you may know that I am the Lord. And Ahab then answered when he heard this prophecy, by whom? In other words, how will it happen? And he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. And then he said, and who will set the battle in order? In other words, who will arrange the battle lines? And he answered, you. And then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces, and there were 232. And after them, he mustered all the people and all the children of Israel, 7,000. So take notice what happens here. Ahab realizes God's going to give him victory, so he inquires further now, and it says here, verse 14 and 15, that he's informed that the way that God would bring about his work and victory is he says, I'm going to do it, verse 14 there, he says, through the young leaders of the province. In other words, he says, the way I'm going to bring about my victory is through the young people among you, through the young men. And he says, well, well who's, going to, who's then going to set the battle in order? And, and, and God says, well, well, that's what you're going to do. In other words, you're going to provide the oversight, you're going to give the direction, but God's going to use them as his instrument with their energy and strength and passions. They're the ones that are going to bring about the work of the Lord to bring the victory, and you're going to cooperate by providing the oversight and the direction in the process. You're going to set the battle in order. And I look at this and I think, what a beautiful pattern, because so often that is the pattern in which the Lord does bring about his works is that God sees the value of each generation and how often God will bring about his works and his plans and his purposes with the younger and the older working in cooperation because both generations have wonderful things to contribute. And so God says here, I'll bring it through the younger people, but you're going to have to set the battle in order and give the direction and the guidance in the process. So they assemble them, verse 16. They went out at noon, which is an unusual time to enter into warfare in a hot Mideastern climate. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. Now, that's pretty confident if you're getting drunk on the day of battle. The young leaders of the provinces, verse 17, went out first. And Ben-Hadad went out, sent out a patrol, and he, they told them, men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, if they have come out for peace, then take them alive. And if they have come out for war, take them alive. Now, that's what you call the stupidity of drunkenness right there. Do you catch the drift there? I mean, you can almost sense there's got to be a slur. If they've come out for peace, take them alive. <laughs> if they come out for war, take them alive. Ah, uh, boss, are you sure about... Yeah. I mean, that just goes to show you the... Re I mean, just the reasoning, you can tell they're just... Again, the, the foolishness of getting drunk, what does it do? It makes you completely vulnerable. It ruins your thinking capacities and it makes you make really dumb choices and, and judgments that are just, I mean, just totally contradictory. Whatever, just bring them back alive. Well, verse 19, these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them and each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled. So God honored his word. And Israel pursued them, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. And then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. So God brought about, as he said he would, 
the victory that he had promised to them, though they were greatly outnumbered. Verse 22, notice again. And the prophet, again, an unnamed prophet. Was it the same prophet or another unnamed prophet? The prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him this time, Go, strengthen yourself, take note, and see what you should do. For in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. So notice what what happens here. Now a word comes from the Lord this time to basically say to Ahab, look, you've had a victory. You've had a success. But don't get overconfident. Because in the spring of the year, which is when the grounds would dry up and it would be easier to travel more quickly, which typically was the time when battles were fought, in the spring of the year, he says, he's going to return. And he's going to come back again. And there's going to be more warfare and there's going to be another attack. So he says, look, what you would be wise to do, don't become self-confident. Don't think somehow you accomplished this. This was a work of the Lord. And the Lord is telling you now, he says, look, go strengthen yourself. The idea is get prepared, be ready, because he says in the spring of the year, he's going to come back and there's going to be more conflict again. Be ready because the, the battle will take, take place again. And I think this is good encouragement for us as well, thinking of our lives and spiritual warfare and the enemy of our soul because the reality is, look, maybe we have victory against the enemy and temptation. We should never think, well, because I had victory last week, then I can just let my guard down and, well, I just, I've conquered that forever because, look, the enemy's going to come back and there will be a next temptation. There will be further attacks and further assaults and we have to keep ourselves strong in the Lord it tells us in in Ephesians chapter 6 regarding spiritual warfare that we need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power we need to stay close to the Lord we need to keep our guard up and maintain the shield of faith and realize that just like the devil did with Jesus he will do with us there's not going to be just one attack and that's it a war consists of many battles over time And interesting, when you read the account of Jesus' temptation, uh, it's insightful. I don't really care for it because of what it says, but it it says that the devil came, tempted Jesus. Remember, he went through the three very difficult temptations. And then it says, you read the account, I believe it's in Luke's gospel, it says, and then the devil left him until an opportune time. The, The idea was he left him until another opportunistic occasion when he could come and tempt Jesus and launch attacks and assaults against him again. And we need to realize in our lives, yesterday's victory does not guarantee tomorrow's victory. We need to always be ready, be on guard, keep ourselves strong in the Lord and close to him and in step with the things of the Spirit of God so that we can always be ready to resist the next attack, the next assault, because it will come against our lives. We need to be cautious and prepared of that. Verse 23, Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, their gods are the gods of the hills. Therefore, they are strong. They were stronger than we. But if we fight against them in the plain, aha, they're thinking that's the plan. Surely we will be stronger than they. So notice, this was a common thought in that day that deities were regulated to localities. Uh, so they thought, hey, some people's gods are the gods of the hills. And so that's why the, the presence of their gods are stronger than their other people. Their deities are the gods of the plains. So that we just got to we got to get them where, where their God. We can't go in the backyard of their God. We got to just take them in our backyard, get them on our turf. 
And so that's why they beat us in the hills. But if we get them in the plains, uh, then we'll be able to conquer them, they say. They're going to prepare their next attack. So do this thing. Here's the instruction. Dismiss, dismiss the kings, fire the politicians, each from his position, and put captains in their places. Get some military guys. The kings didn't let us succeed. Give us some military captains. And you shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and we will fight against them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. So it was in the spring of the year, again, just like God predicted prophetically, Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. That is second time now. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions, and they went out against him. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. So you can see the odds are greatly mismatched here. I mean, they're filling the whole countryside and Israel's army looks like just two little tiny flocks of goats on the hills. Verse 28, then a man of God, again, another unnamed servant. Then a man of God came and spoke to the king and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, the Lord is God of the hills, but he is not God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. So again, another promise of God and again, this time has nothing to do with their worthiness, has to do with God's honor. God says, look, because they think that I'm only the God of the hills and not the God of the valleys, I'm going to whoop them again. <laughs> that you would know that I'm the one true and living God and that I am God everywhere. I'm the God of the hills. And he says there that I am also the God of the valleys. And, you know, we need to remember that for ourselves because sometimes though we may not say that. We, we sometimes think that. We sometimes think, well, yeah, God's in, the, God's in the hilltops and the mountaintop experiences, oh, that retreat or that worse. And we think God's sometimes limited to locality. I mean, we make that mistake as Christians. Who at times as a Christian does not come into the church and behave one way compared to the way they behaved all week out in the world? Huh? As if somehow God's, God's here more than he's out in the world. So we come in here and we change our language. And we talk to our family differently. And we put on a whole different... Because God's in here. So we've got to make sure we're good before God. The reality is God's everywhere. God's presence is everywhere. And look, in the same way, God is with us in the hilltops. And God's also with us in the valleys. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. God's the God of the valleys too. Maybe you're going through the valleys. Look, that don't mean God's not with you. That don't mean God can't give you victory in the valley. In fact, those are the times when God gives some of the greatest victories. When it's the darkest and the hardest and things seem the deepest and most overwhelming. And here God wants to prove that reality. So verse 29, they camped opposite each other for seven days. And so it was on the seventh day, the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. That's a phenomenal miracle. But the rest fled to Aphek and to the city. And then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. So God creates some earthquake, it seems, to destroy the rest of the army. And Ben-Hadad fled away and went into an inner chamber. And then his servants said to him, Look now, for we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put on sackcloth around our waists, waist, ropes around our heads, and go to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. 
So they wore sackcloth around their waists and put ropes around their heads and they came to the king of Israel and said, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, is he still alive? He is my brother. Hello? Your brother? This is Ben-Hadad. This is your enemy. So look what the enemy's doing now. And this is often what our enemy does as well. He says, okay, if I can't win by intimidation and force and attack, then I'll just win by compromise. I'll just look for subtle compromise. I'll, I'll say, hey, look, come on, let's be brothers. Let's make an alliance. And look exactly what Ahab falls for. Verse 33. Now the men were watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come. And they quickly grasped at his word and said, your brother, Ben-Hadad. So he said, go, bring him. And Ben-Hadad came out to him and he came up into the chariot so Ben-Hadad said to him, the cities which my father took from your father, I will restore and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with him and sent him away. So he very foolishly stumbles and falls prey to compromise. And look, the devil's not dumb. If the devil can't get you by a direct frontal assault, he'll find some way to come around the back door to get you in compromise. And we have to be careful. And here Ben-Hadad makes this uh, you know, plea and Ahab takes it hook, line, and sinker and hears of a good opportunity and establishing a partnership and political alliance and he now makes a treaty with the enemy. And I tell you, that never works. He should have destroyed the enemy. God wanted to eradicate this enemy so it didn't continue to plague Israel, but Ahab makes a poor decision. Well, look how the chapter closes. It says, Now a certain man of the sons of the prophets, and we'll see more of them. These were kind of people who were being trained as prophetic ministry workers. Said to his neighbor, By the word of the Lord, so this was a word from God, Strike me, please. And the man refused to strike him. And then he said, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. Now this is, imagine, here one of these sons of the prophets from the school of the prophets turns to an associate up here and he says, look, I know that God's called me to do something. He, he wanted to go and do a symbolic presentation to be a part of his prophecy. And many times they would go through all these antics as they would do prophecies and so forth. So he says, I need to look like somebody who was wounded in battle. God wants you to strike me. Says, I'm not striking you. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's the word of the Lord. Punch me in the face, man. Right? This is contradicting his logic. I don't want to punch you in the face. He says, if you don't punch me in the face, you're going to disobey the voice of the Lord and a lion's going to eat you when you walk out of here. And the guy chooses not to obey and sure enough, the consequence comes and a lion eats him. Now, think about this. This clearly we see is alignment with what he was supposed to do to look like someone wounded in battle when he gave his prophecy that's why he asked this man to do this. But I want you to just think for a moment, what happens? Here a word from the Lord comes to this person who's invited to strike the other guy and he, he hears a word from the Lord. He hears the voice of the Lord and he thinks, wait a minute, that's contradicting logic. That's not logical. Punch you in the face. That doesn't make sense to me. And it's not my preference. It doesn't line up with how I feel. I don't feel like punching you in the face. And because it doesn't line up with how he feels or his personal preference or his logical reasoning, 
He doesn't obey the voice of the Lord and he gets devoured by a lion. Can I remind you of 1 Peter 5? Reminds us one of the symbolic pictures of the devil is he's what? A roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And you know what? One of the best ways to see our life get devoured by the roaring lion is to not obey the voice of the Lord. And sometimes the voice of the Lord may say something to us that contradicts our preference. It may go against our feelings. It may even go against our logic. And we're thinking, Lord, that doesn't, I don't understand. Why would you want me to do that? And Lord, I don't want to do that. But look, we're called to obey the voice of the Lord. That's the safest thing for us to do. And when we don't obey, we put ourselves at risk for the roaring lion to devour our lives. So verse 37, he found another man and said, strike me, please. And that man was, you know, he enjoyed it a little bit more. He struck him. There you go. Inflicting a wound. And the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road, disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. And as the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, your servant went out into the midst of the battle. That's why he had this bandage on him. And there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, guard this man. If any means he goes missing, your life shall be for his or else you shall pay a town of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, he was gone. And the king of Israel said to him, so shall be your judgment. You yourself have decided. In other words, hey, that was, that was neglect. You neglected your responsibility. You let that person escape from under your supervision Uh, you've declared your own judgment. Well, verse 41, the prophecy connected now, and he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes. And then the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he prophetically said, thus says the Lord, because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, Ben-Hadad. Therefore, your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. So the prophet portrays this negligence that King Ahab was guilty of because he didn't ask the Lord when he had been had that at his disposal, what do you want me to do? Because the Lord would have said, I don't want you to make a treaty with him. I want you to destroy him because if not, he's going to destroy my people. And instead, he lets him slip out of his hand. And and basically what's being described here is Ahab failed to do what God wanted him to do. He failed to do what was right. He did not follow through. He didn't seek God's will. He just did what he preferred. And here God had something before him. And he says, look, I have something I want you to do. And you just let the opportunity to slip right out of your hands. You didn't act upon it. I coordinated these things. I put them together. The opportunity is right there in front of you and you neglected to embrace it. You had neglected to act upon it and to follow through. And as a result, he ruined a God-given opportunity and he suffered personal harm. And he ended up, interesting, verse 43, it says, being sullen and displeased. The idea is that he ended up just being depressed because he realized, oy vey, I totally messed up something God wanted me to do. And you know what? We have to be careful because sometimes we can be careless and we can be negligent. And when God sets something before us and it's of the Lord, we need to be seeking the Lord and be open to, to what Lord, what would you have me to do? And that we don't neglect and set aside those things God would have us to do because if we do, all we're going to do is suffer loss 
and we are going to have regret and be bummed and depressed and discouraged because we're going to realize, man, I totally blew it. I was negligent with what God wanted me to do. Let's stand. Let's pray together. Sorry for going a little long there. I just wanted to wrap up that chapter, but let's turn our hearts back to the Lord and worship as we conclude that.